0: Hello, I'm Emma Rice, the Artistic Director of Wise Children, and you're listening to Wise Children's Lockdown. Our lockdown project is about us finding ways of staying close to each other. On this show, I call up an old friend, play some records, and most importantly, get to chat and reminisce. Come and join us for Tea and Biscuits. Hello and welcome to Wise Children's Lockdown Tea and Biscuits and today I'm talking to my old, old, old friend and colleague, Vicky Mortimer. Hi, Vick. So old. Well, I, I know, so old, but because I've been thinking about this, it's been 30 years. Oh, I feel so proud of that. I love that. That's made me all go a bit funny. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing, it's It's such a joy absolutely amazing So I think, I mean, it's all such a blur going back But I think we met in 1990 On Arden of Faversham At the Old Red Lion in London Directed by Katie Mitchell I think you may be right about that (laughs) That was in the the kind of Polish days (laughs) It was
1: the Polish days Of Um, mud floors and covering pubs in earth Oh, and it was so so dark, so dark. It in <laughs> fact probably lit entirely by candles, wasn't it?
0: Yes, there was candlelight. Lots of me wailing in a sort of strange <laughs> Eastern European way. Yeah, lots of my, yeah, yeah, lots of candles. And I yeah. just remember it being so dark. None of us, none of us could see each other. Let alone the audience seeing us. <laughs> <laughs> and so hot. And so was- hot. Um so and for finding- those of you who don't know, Vicky is the most amazing designer. And we met on our fringe days in our early, early 20s um, and worked a lot with Katie Mitchell, which is a sort of less, not much talked about link in the world that I did many shows with Katie. And you've yeah. continued to work with Katie yeah. for yeah. decades. And that was the yeah. first one. And you, I remember it so clearly because you... Painted almost medieval faces around the old red lion, and then sort of scrubbed them out as if they'd been desecrated along the way. But it was such a work of fine art in this sort of ridiculous environment that probably sat thirty people. Like, it's it's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think there was um, a level of sort of craft
1: and investment that was a really good um, sort of training ground almost, because it was all what we could manage ourselves. It was, it was sort of executed with will uh, and whatever bare skills we had at that <laughs> stage. And because Katie was such a kind of engine, particularly in those early days, she was uh, uncontradictable. <laughs> you know so so her energy kind of led the way she had a kind of monastic zeal um, and, we, and it meant that actually it re, the positive of that was it felt like everything was possible and that we just put in the time and the effort to make it happen and I think the bespoke nature of sort of creating those spaces was a really it was a really good training and a really good pleasure actually and working to what abilities I had which were sort of barely exercised sort of natal skills (laughs) (laughs) if I look back on it now I just think we were living in a bubble such a funny bubble but But the pub culture was really strong then
0: oh it was really strong the fringe culture and we really did work for nothing and we really did work for the work's sake yeah Um, and yeah there was a ferocity a burning intensity as you say katie had it in spades but so did we actually we sort of found each other through the eastern european link so katie had been over to gargianica theater association in poland and worked with vodek staniewski and was completely inspired by that and whilst we never crossed in poland i had trained over there and performed with them so that was how when back in england we found each other um but that you know they they worked as if their lives depended on it and Katie took that on in spades and so did I and she was the when I found began to find my place and there was you as well but like you say it's sort of a blur isn't it and no money not not a whiff of money
1: definitely no
0: money I mean this is kind of relevant to the
1: current situation and what you know what life looks like for young, particularly young people coming out of the coronavirus economic lockdown. You know, if I think back to what we, how we were able to work like that, it was essentially because the benefit system supported our early years. Yes. You know, I was on rent rebate and income support throughout that entire, probably for the first least five years of my working life, mm. which meant that I could. Live the work. I I wasn't doing a bar job. I wasn't working in a shop to support myself. I was able to really plow into starting my working life, and I know I just didn't earn a penny for about the first five years. It was all the so-called profit share system because <laughs> there was never a profit. Um, and and I think you know it it was a incredibly privileged time in that sense to be starting work we, we could afford to be what you might call idealistic you know to find our to find a sense of meaning and purpose in what we do
0: and to build um, our craft but we were incredibly farm, lucky yeah. and incredibly privileged but it still makes me rage because we've paid back that investment tenfold a mm. hundredfold through yeah. taxes quite rightly so I think if you if you flip it, we, we were invested in by the state and we've yeah. paid it back and actually yeah. without, as you say if I was a young person now, I have I don't think I'd have got through those first five years don't No, don't know, I, I would be do doing something
1: that.
2: different,
0: yeah definitely yeah, oh, now, now you're talking that's what I've always <laughs> wanted to do it's always my, if I'm not going to be a director, what would I do Let's have some music. What's your first choice and explain why?
1: Okay, so my first choice is a track by Toots and the Maytals. So I grew up in Bristol, which in the sort of late 70s was really a reggae city. And uh, so it was sort of the beginnings of... Uh, me sort of understanding the wild joy of discovering music that really makes a connection and makes you want to sort of sing at the top of your voice and dance a lot. (laughs) And uh, there used to be this most brilliant club in Bristol called The Dugout. Has anybody ever talked to you about The Dugout? No. So it was on Park Row in Bristol, and it was in a sort of... Because Bristol's really hilly, so you could go in at street level, but actually the club was more or less all underground because it connected to Park Street around the back. So it was like three layers of unbelievably dark, sweaty, stinky, <laughs> of course then cigarette smoke filled uh, parts of the club and it was so illicit, it was like a kind of speakeasy feel. It was it was sort of viscerally exciting to go into as a young teenager where probably you weren't even meant to be there anyway but they they played a lot of reggae at the dugout and it just woke me up to the sort of to the possibilities of that sort of body connection to pleasure it was like meeting sex you know and because it was such these The kind of Afro Caribbean community, such a big part of Bristol. It then led on to going to the St Paul's Festival, as it was then, and um, just enjoying that mash up of strange cultures, sort of just rubbing along. And Bristol's got a sort of still got quite an unreconstructed, slightly seventies feel about it. It still feels a little bit like a hippie town. It's got that potential to. Be sort of open at the same time as having obviously a very vexed history with its um, sort of 19th century slave industry past. But the positive of that was just the, just thinking this whole culture of, of reggae and ska was just brilliant.
3: Mister, yeah, so? yeah. yeah, no, 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 no. yeah. Get your hands in the air, sir Woo, yeah Then you will get no hurt, mister No, no, no I said, yeah to hurt myself, so I was innocent of what they done to me, There was wrong, ha, listen to me one more time, they were wrong, ha. oh! Uh-huh. Give it, give it, give it.
0: I can reveal to you that that was played on original vinyl because it's one of Simon's most prized records as well Yay! he nearly cheered so, when he saw the chosen them. oh that really pleases me there's something about there's that
1: lovely call and response sort of feeling at the beginning and then it's so it's like tantalising when's it going to start when's it going to start and then the beat starts and then you are gonna they get that brilliant section which just used to get me roaring was where it says give it to me one time uh, uh. give it to me two times uh, uh. It, and it just oh it still fills me with real delight it's brilliant it's such a hot weather song as well so even in the middle of winter you turn it on and you feel like you're sort of sunshine out with is yeah simples <laughs> gorgeous
0: So I'm going to take us um, back into our Eastern European past for a short while because we graduated in Katie's wake (laughs) from the fringe (laughs) to the mainstream (laughs) and (laughs) or holding on to her train. I know what you're going to talk about now. We did A Woman Killed With Kindness at the RSC, but we also (laughs) went on and did The Mysteries, which was the last time... The three of us worked together as a team. Um, And I'd by that point stopped performing with Katie, very much against my will. I still felt that I needed and was owed a leading role, but never got one. But by this point, I was very much in the creative team alongside you and was choreographing using all the skills that I'd found in Poland and my natural desire to make up dance steps. Um, But it was a real turning point in my life that production for me, because I think it was when I realised it I realised that I needed more of a creative voice in the in the space. And Katie's such an auteur um, that she's she's amazing to work with. But at some point I thought, actually, I, I there's there's not room in this relationship for two of us. And I think she once said one of the most sweet and insulting things anybody's ever said to me, because she once said <laughs> I can always trust you to come up with the wrong idea, but it will lead me to the right idea. (laughs) But I do look back... He's forensic. (laughs) But I do look back and think about um, how extraordinary that two women that are almost exact opposites did spend these sort of formative years together and you witnessed all that and have continued to work with Mm. both of us so Mm. I just wondered what what your thoughts are after all this time 30 years (laughs) (laughs) it's so it, I mean, in
1: a way, what she said to you expresses exactly what you just said, <laughs> which is that there's there's this sense of two ends of <laughs> two ends of the possibilities, and you're at one and she's at the other. <laughs> and of course, you're right that you needed to find that right moment where what you were getting by being in the room wasn't enough to keep you in the room. Um, so your sense of timing, I think, was probably really acute but i i suppose you could sort of say that there's this almost sort of apollo and dionysus relationship <laughs> <laughs> where you know traditionally there's this sort of cerebral kind of apollonian thing that goes on and then it's it's sort of equal twin is the dionysiac sort of life connection and i think it's not that katie doesn't have that in her own way but i think she was really uh, I think she knew she needed your direct access to the life force to to give a, a sort of authentic weight in a way to what her brain was generating sort of on on the sort of upper level of things, if you see what I mean. I mean, that sounds really kind of uh simplistic, but there's something in it, I think. Um, it's, it's. I think Katie, you know, she's got this incredible brain and real kind of tenacity. Her stamina is unbelievable. Her mental stamina is unbelievable. But I think there is a sense that she knows she needs to enlist this other energy to really make a connection for an audience. Um, and I think that early time where you know, she spent that time in Poland with the Gardzianica lot. I think the reason why it was so profound that meeting for her is it had a <clears throat> level of connection between rigorous practice and a sort of authenticity that I, I think she felt was really lacking in British sort of theatre work at that time. And I think. Authenticity is something that, that you, Emma Rice, cannot avoid having. You, it's just like you're not you're not built to be inauthentic in any part of you. You know, you, what what you are is what you are, and I think she would have recognised that. Um, and of course, part of her intellect might have been a bit nervous about the power of that, and probably tried to keep it in the proportion that she could manage within her work space but I think that must have been the draw because
0: I think yeah you're no fake <laughs> oh well thank you and neither is she you know I look back it's been I, I think it was such formative years and her fierce intellect and belief in herself have, have inspired me to this day and um, and in her vision and the the need to do it. So, in honour of those early years for all of us, I'm going to play a little bit of the Bulgarian voice. This is the Bulgarian State Radio and Television Female Vocal Choir. And when this landed in England in the early 1990s, we'd never heard anything like it. I can remember my skin fizzing, my eyes fizzing, my ears fizzing, and... um, and and it, it I felt changed by it, and changed by something so other and so passionate and so female as well. So let's hear them. What a sound! Yeah, it's the scale as
1: well, isn't it? That feeling that you're—it's—it's it's like a great whoosh across an enormous landscape. That it's a calling. It feels oh. like there's a kind of reaching. Reaching a call is amazingly powerful. I haven't listened to that since then, I don't
0: think. Well, it's worth, I've just dug it out. It's worth another listen. It's amazing. So before we move on from those um, early days, uh, because of course our friendship was built then, but I don't really remember, um, I don't remember how it started, which is interesting because as a performer, you don't tend to hang out with designers too much. But we we were also young. And of course you do form friendships by those shared shared experiences and yeah. and certainly within a few years every time I went to London I stayed with you your flat became my London home when you had Elsie Elsie was like my stepdaughter <laughs> in many ways and continues to yeah. be and you know yeah. the you were such a massive part of my life but I was thinking about when that friendship was formed and I was just remembering the time which again we were working at the RSC with Katie and we were staying in a shared house together I mean God knows how we didn't kill each other I've got so many funny (laughs) memories of it and um, but you we were doing um, A Woman Killed With Kindness and you decided that each actor would have a hand embroidered badge which would be their coat of arms which the actor would design with you and then embroider themselves which would mean they'd have a real input into their costume and of course the actors didn't do it <laughs> <laughs> No, they didn't. It just didn't happen. I think possibly not even one. I think that might be true. So we ended up like a weird cottage industry in Stratford. Um, And I think Katie was probably so busy doing her research, she didn't really do it. it. So you were making these exquisite little badges and I was doing them and my embroidery was getting bigger and bigger so I could do them faster and more sloppily. (laughs) and I think you had to say they're just not good enough I think I was on like baby stitches by the end (laughs) those (laughs) things oh
1: my god it's such a brilliant brilliant memory that because we were living in one of those weird um, really felt like you're in somebody else's house in the sort of if it's possible to be even more suburban than central Stratford we were in a more suburban (laughs) bit of Stratford and it was a sort of 1930s house full of somebody else's belongings and so we were like these sort of squatters (laughs) almost katie was absolutely driven and and i'm sure she will forgive me for saying practically humor free for the entire experience (laughs) because she just was so uh determined and she was at that stage because it was so early on actors really had no idea what to expect working with her and so they arrived in a room where she was asking things of them that royal shakespeare company directors just didn't want them to do normally and so she was having to front her process yeah every day i think it must have been extremely um demanding for her, but she it meant meant that she was a humourless housemaid. <laughs> I remember you and I sort of sitting downstairs when Katie was up in her room, sort of snorting and giggling like terrible <laughs> kind of bad children. And sitting on the sofa with these
0: wretched badges to do our stitching our <laughs> embroidery. And I also remember in that house that Katie had somehow come into contact with Steve Martin in America. And I was like I was like, wow, that's amazing. You've met Steve Martin. She said I don't know who he is. And I can remember finding Roxanne and trying to show Katie Mitchell (laughs) Roxanne (laughs) on video in and her just stony face like thinking, What is this? What am I watching? (laughs) And I think it was um, around that time making me do <laughs> just again the two polar opposites with the, the seesaw of me and Katie, me loving Steve Martin, and um, and then I can also remember because it was the time of when we were <laughs> watching videos to pass the time, watching that that film about Ed Wood, the B movie director, and I can remember at the time thinking this is like me and Katie. <laughs> just <laughs> he just thought everything was brilliant I thought I am Edward a B-movie because he would do these terrible fights with a plastic <laughs> octopus and go and people would say do you want to retake that and he'd go no it's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> so secretly it's my own secret thing is that I'm Edward to Katie's real deal um, what's your second it, song choice Vic and why okay why?
1: it's uh, Aretha Franklin and uh, it's Respect And one of the things that sort of carried me through those sort of early sort of working times was a a sort of the the female connection. Um, It's difficult to really sort of take on board now when, how, how male dominated our industry was when we started out. I don't know about you, when I think about how long I've been working, I feel impossibly historic anyway, but (laughs) the reality was when we first entered the the theatre world, more or less all of the power base was in male hands. It was very unusual to meet women um, who had any traction in decision making in theatre, but either creatively or or administratively actually. There were obviously outstanding women that were in positions of making a difference, but there was something, I don't know about you, but I feel quite um, lucky in a way to have grown up in a part of the feminist movement where, as I left school and university, I, I sort of assumed that It was just onward progress from here and that there would be no retraction, um, that women's opportunities would just get better. And so when it became clear, sort of during the Thatcher years and then moving forward into uh, a much more problematic sort of gender political era, um, it was such a, a blow. And I felt incredibly lucky that in a way I had, a, I had exited my kind of educational life with those expect, sort of uh, almost unquestioning expectation that it would all be all right and that I would have a place um, and that these incredible women had prepared the ground, you know, the, the feminists that had prepared the ground in the 70s and early 80s, that I would just be... Running on that track. Um, And then when I started to see the sort of complexity of that, and actually how immovable an awful lot of those traditional expectations were, voices like Aretha and that whole sort of soul movement, the kind of the movement for change, the political music making, um, were. It became incredibly important to me as a soundtrack in in my sort of in the sort of into my first, first ten years maybe of working and um so people like you know, Etta James and uh, Aretha Motown female vocalists there was something about you know a lot of the biographical stuff about those women is still very much tangled up with you know, their relationship to men and how their careers were managed by men and so on. But actually out of it comes this sort of fierce female uh, sort of sense of potency and um, challenge. And I think Respect is such a brilliant track for that. And again, it makes you feel the kind of, the power of that connection, it's just joyous.
0: now what did you say in the dugout I want to be in the dugout having a dance to that with a big delicious beer in my hand <laughs> I want to go forward a little bit and um, our, our paths sort of went apart didn't they so I went ended up down in Cornwall Um, working at knee high you were building your career your amazing career in london but as i say your flat in stockwell was the meeting ground. so our relationship continued throughout all those years and yeah having a little moment to reflect it's amazing we held on by a thread didn't we and whilst we were never able to work with each other all the time you came and you designed the costumes for nights at the circus the knee high show in the early 2000s and also a Matter of Life and Death the first time that we came to that I went to the National Um, and with those two projects you designed the costumes and Bill Mitchell my wonderful um, designer late designer at at NEHI did the set but why did you say yes to those projects? because it certainly (laughs) wasn't for the budget was it? (laughs) didn't you get your feedback to Nights at the Circus have I imagined that? I think I did, I can't remember why I've
1: never been very good with money though (laughs) Well that's true I I mean, it's only it's only in this immediate crisis that I've even started to really think about money and think, oh Christ I could probably do with some of that money now, (laughs) that I was so kind of careless about in the past I think um, I mean, Nights at the Circus was the first time I came down to the barns to Neil Barnes, and that such a extraordinary. I just remember getting the train down and being picked up and taken off to this sort of wild bit of cliff. Um, I mean, the, the sort of why is um, it is? I suppose about. I'm interested in what I do as a. It's a collaboration primarily, so. And what and how collaborations create processes that that give a a sort of integrated identity. So you get process and and what the audience sees becoming one and the same thing. So there's something about the ethos of knee High at that you know when you asked me to come down and do that that felt like somewhere in the area of authenticity again it's about making a, a really genuine and honest contract with an audience and that starts inside that rehearsal process and I think if I think back to the nights at the circus process it was really about me taking a, a, almost quite a I wanted that challenge. I I wanted to not be inside quite the the dry making environments that I'd found myself in where there was a very clear structure. I would design the thing with the director and then the actors would arrive at some point and you'd sort of put the two things together. And I think the sort of, I felt there was a really beneficial danger to me, going into a, a making environment where the actors were so much part of the process it required a lot of courage to, I felt it was really good for me to make myself vulnerable and expose my process as I as I felt it then, whereas actually now I see it as this sort of um, you know, thinking back to work we've made more recently together, that business of performers and team as it were creative team working so much as collaborate co-collaborators feels really just amazing uh, fertile genuine kind of act of creation now but back then I think it was I I had found myself in quite a conventional theatre making environment where I could be a bit shy in a way because I, there, there was the sort of privilege of the separate process at the beginning which so you could sort of make things happen in private and then when you thought it was really ready you shared it with other people whereas yeah. it, there was a, there was something about being literally undressed i mean sort of being really like you got your knickers on <laughs> in the knee-high making process that i was really drawn to because i didn't want to be just stuck in that um shy place and that's
0: really interesting that's such a sort of natural urge isn't it to only share something when it's ready and that really by um taps into that bit that we've all got which is the fear of not being good enough so you, you you fiercely protect yourself until you can say this is the best i can give and yeah my process and the barns smashes that out of the water because there's no fun in that there's no surprise in that um yeah you want to, be, to trust each other enough to say, this isn't ready. This might be a bad idea. This might be a good idea. And, yeah, yeah. But I also remember, I remember very clearly the first time you came down to the barns because you've really informed my process with your intellect and your um, amazing artist's mind because I, at that time, was, was creating characters in quite a clown-based way. So I would be taking the responsibility away from the actor And there was one part of an exercise when I would dress them up, but but they would be dressed up by the other actors. And I used to love this. I'd put together a kit in the room and then random, you wouldn't let anybody prepare it. The other actors would dress up their fellow performer and then we'd improvise. Um, Pure clowning, pure thrill of chance and just a way of exploring. And you watched me do this once and you said, can I, I'm going to add some things into this and you curated the costumes you didn't control them you curated them and I feel that at that moment you gave me the idea that I could curate the area the oxygen the space of surprise but it didn't have to be random so I think you actually really pushed my process away from Mm. totally random into something where you were beginning to shepherd the process into something and you started feeding in your design ideas uh, by stealth a random curation and that I've held on to that forever you know and I think in fact speaking about it we should do it again let's do it on Wuthering Heights think about how you yeah. can create a room which is already curated but all the yeah. space for surprise yeah I feel really
1: proud of that if that's true I mean I think that um, I I think what what that achieves you know that what your process of um a bravery uh, achieves is a real sort of lifeline connection between the sort of inception of a project and what arrives in the live space with the audience. It, it's it's that's the sort. That's the um, what's that word? It's what it's what it's the holy grail. It's what we're all looking for. Is how you make how you make a performance remain live, even though decisions have been made mm-hmm. necessarily. You know that the, the editorial process has refined and uh, really kind of refined and defined what are the necessary. Rules for production, but you want the life force to be absolutely still available, and I think that's what your process achieves in a way that I've never really seen um, with the same kind of prickly neck thing <laughs> in anybody else's work. You know, I think it is a real, you know, my, in, in, amongst my collaborations, that sort of it's it's like access to the audience's nerve centres somehow and I think you're actually while we're listening to music I think your use of music is really like that you have an incredible instinct for what music hits a moment um, so yeah, I, don't, I, I have such strong memories of being in theatres watching shows you've made that I haven't been involved in and a piece of music starts and it's literally like my little fuzzy hairs are standing up because <laughs> it's so ripe for the moment and the associations are so true how did I get onto that anyway it's um yeah
0: I'm gonna remarkable I'm going to play you a bit of music now, which will take in. you back to the first show that you designed wholly for me at Knee High Don John, which we created at the RSC. Still remains one of the pieces I am most proud of. It was ahead me of too. its time, so ambitious. So loved to see that show now. Oh, yeah. me too. Me too. Well, there I'm saying those words. Um, it was a pre-me too piece yeah and this is yeah. the opening number written by Stu Barker Dom Lawton on vocals and um, it was it was inspired by the opera Don Giovanni so it had the same sort of structure and in many ways in my head this is the overture that you would have had if you'd done the Mozart um, and it was in the 1970s and we were in an empty church and it was as if God had left the building and the vicar was had no con- congregation and it still makes the hairs, my fuzzy hairs, stick up when I listen to this. On
4: a night like this The dead wish they were awake When only fools are walking are full of longing on a night like this Another shot of bravery before you wander home Another glass of stay with me before you leave alone Another night of broken dreams before the dark has flown. Streetlights flicker like dreamers
0: From Don John, lyrics by Anna Maria Murphy, and you can hear Mary Woodfine there on vocals as well. Talk to me about so
1: that. Show. Oh my God, it's so evocative of that show. I was just thinking about it was an incredible bunch of performers, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, there's something there's that line about the streetlight flickering, and it you know it, what's it really makes me remember. You know, we used the festoons and this kind of fizzing electricity that used to erupt through. The show and um, this oh appalling sadness and desolation, but also this incredible vein of the survivors' anger that drove the women's story mm. through. And you know, actually, Geasley's courage in performing that role in the way that he did—it um, was. A man with no soul. It was it was so fantastic to see that story told in a way that, that didn't disempower the women mm-hmm. but genuinely told about the women's predicament. You know, Patty and, and, and the choices that that character made to sort of make her way through and get out of the situation alive was so kind of vibrant it was
0: oh it was magical that show one, um, one of the things that I remember about the process which was complete accident again was um, Gisleon Gardasson, who was playing my Don John who is, was and always will be a superstar he was not available for the last, there was about 10 days towards the end of rehearsals or or a week, I can't really remember but I'd agreed that he um, he was filming, that he wouldn't be there. So we devised this show with him and then there was a period in rehearsals where he left and the whole ensemble rehearsed this show without him and it was like there was a hole where Don John, Don Giovanni, Casanova, you know that womanising archetype was missing and it felt like we made mm. this really it was amazing we kind of got used to it almost being a space that he inhabited rather than a body so the, the mm. company became incredibly strong and the story became incredibly strong around this space and then Geasley stepped back into it and of course he does just doesn't care he's the most uh, sort of charismatic Happy go lucky sort of person that he stepped back into this space with this power around him, and that was one of those wonderful sort of chances of process where you the, the women were so powerful, and yet they but they were powerful in expressing their rage and their predicament rather than pretending the world was anything other. It was a really astonishing yeah. piece. And your design, Vic, I mean, we still talk about it. It has been mentioned on other Tea and Biscuits. It was the heaviest <laughs> set ever designed in British touring theatre. <laughs> Steph Curtis, our stage manager, when I did her Tea and Biscuits, said that when we scrapped the one of those shipping containers, it was heavier than a shipping container. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah because of course we couldn't just have a shipping container could we <laughs> no <laughs> we had to have a royal shakespeare company shipping container or three. Oh. <laughs> oh my god but it was i mean it, it was a really interesting you talking about the sort of godlessness of you know that that god has left the building i, I felt it the whole show had this incredible connection to a feeling of a feelings of abandonment, you know, that a, t- such a strong desire for connection, for true connection between characters. And, and yet that trying to establish itself within this appallingly abandoned uh, community, you know, the setting at that time in the 70s, you know, where people were just cut adrift, You know, Mm -hmm. there was no sense of a safety net. It was such a perfect marriage. And of course, that's why, honestly, I would love to see that production again now because it Mm -hmm. feels so, so relevant. Um, And, you know, love is a metaphor for a sense of connected security, you know, a sense of um, how to, how to really meet people and be Mm -hmm. together. Uh, oh, it
0: was, yeah, amazing. And then... And so ambitious. So we so over-pumped, knee-high. <laughs> Everything and the RSC. But that's what we're on the planet to do, Vic Mortimer. What's your next song <laughs> choice and why?
1: Oh, well, yeah, this is Solomon Burke. Um, it's called None of Us Are Free. Um, and it, it is, a, it's a sort of a protest song. It's a cool... It's a call to recognise our sort of shared human, oh, yeah, what we need, uh, all of us, and that nobody should be left behind. Um, and I think the reason why I chose it is because it feels really good for now. I keep going on about now, but now is so weird. You can't not talk about it. Um, but it also feels... Um, somehow connected to certainly the work we've made together and I think how your work communicates, which is um, everybody's bloody welcome. You know, it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree, you know, that the fact is this is what's on offer and it's really generous. Um, and we can we can take it all because the contract is so honest. And um, and even if it's not to somebody's taste that's that's okay you know fine if you don't like it, it it's still itself and completely humanly energetically available and it's oh yeah Solomon Burke feels like he could be in one of your shows
0: there's a thought
1: <laughs> well you better listen my sisters
5: and brothers cause if you do you can there voices still calling across the years And they're all crying across the ocean And they're crying across the land And they will to we all come to understand None of us are free None of us are free None of us are free And darkness, and they just can't see the light. If you don't say it's wrong, then that says it's right. We got to try to feel for each other. Let our brothers know that we care. Got to get the message, send it out loud and clear. Fly! The truth is shining bright
0: And that segues fantastically into Wise Children, the first project um, for my new company, Wise Children, after the Globe, um, which you designed for me. There was never going to be another designer for this. You'd already um, done the costumes on nights at the circus with me, but Angela Carter, we knew it. It's in our bones, it's in our blood, it's in our DNA together, and it needed a female voice. A female voice of strength, of rage, of creativity that's got got all the scars of this crazy life that we choose. And that's you and me. And you launched Wise Children, standing next to me, which is something I can't imagine any other way, but I will forever be grateful for. Oh, it was such a brilliant project.
1: I, I don't know... What I was about to say, I don't know what I would have done if I wasn't the designer on that project. It was such the perfect moment. And you and I had been working on Little Match Girl at the Globe um, right around the time when the shit was really hitting at the Globe. And you were trying to rehearse at the same time as trying to manage the fallout from all of the political goings-on there. And... um, and that was such a, um, wow, that was an experience to witness that on the sidelines. I had no idea, you know, you and I hadn't done anything in, together at the Globe up until that point. So I hadn't really got a grasp. I didn't know anything about the Globe. And then sort of being in the middle of the making process and seeing you weathering that with your incredible honesty, um, and so, somehow, you know, the, the whole sort of Olé, shut-eye vibe... You ma- I can't believe you managed to make such a beautiful show, Little Match Girl, even while all of that was <laughs> sort of happening in your lunch break. Um, and so, somehow, the roots for Wise Children and why it felt so right, it was, it was like a sort of gathering of... of um, ...conviction around Wise Children. It was such a perfect choice. Um, and like you say, that um, the celebration of why theatre is such a great thing, even with all of its sort of inherent kind of cost and tragedy and and silliness <laughs> along the way. You know, that it, it was a vindicating project that I felt had its sort of shadow self somewhere in the Match Girl moment. And so, yeah, it was it was vindication somehow, not not of not of you and how you make shows, but just of it as a form
0: of theatre and, and what it gives. You know, theatre is a thing. Why it's there? How interesting! Um, it's, it's amazing to hear you talk about that little match girl time because you know a lot of that time is a blur for me. But actually, mm. you, you say you don't know how I managed to make a show at that time. But actually, theatre is my sanity. Yeah. theatre is my safe place it's my happy place and it's not safe because I know what's going to happen it's safe because there will be joy there will be surprise there will be laughter there is a mm. story um, and that's how I managed to do it but, and that is exactly the bridge that goes to wise children because that's what Angela Carter was celebrating which is yeah, this yeah. messy crazy sort of debilitating life choice is also pure sanity for some of us it's where we know yeah. who we are yeah. And we know who
1: our and family think, of choice is. I think that's really key, the family of choice, that you recognise each other, you know, whether you're working together or not, there's a sense of knowing what your DNA, shared DNA is. I think your thing about identity as well was so interesting on Wise Children, that management was so, it was light as a feather and it is essentially it just said I'm going to position these people in these parts um, and go with it because actually what bubbles up from underneath those casting decisions feels so true to the form of the novel you know that you can have Gareth as one of the twins and you can carry on that sort of complexity of overlapping through all the other roles and it that in itself is a sort of expression of the dynamism and flexibility of the theatrical uh, making process that just translated absolutely directly and just solved all of those problems about identity in one go. And it was absolutely celebratory from that very kind of core decision. And then there was, you know, we could just touch in all that kind of dusty beauty of, you know, deteriorating
0: things (laughs)
1: that we put around it It all. It
0: was dustily gorgeous. I I feel that what you're talking about, that the casting, which is something that's developed over my career, sometimes by mistake, sometimes out of not having enough money to have a big cast and more and more out of understanding what it does. But for me, it becomes more and more a a metaphor, which is we are all capable of anything in life. We are capable of being amazing people and dreadful people. And yeah. I feel um, that by cursing in a way that you say we are capable of anything, that actually that's where theatre and the amazing gap between the audience and the stage where you say, go with me, we're going to do this with truth and passion and we're going to yeah. surprise you, but go with me. And an, and a theatre audience will. They'll say, OK, yeah. we've, we've yeah, come yeah. out of our houses, we've paid for our ticket. We'll, we'll go. And that's where you get that amazing chemistry where anything is yeah. possible, which becomes a political belief, which is, let's see if we can be the best that we can be as much yeah. as is possible.
1: I think what's really interesting about that is, I you know, I would definitely say that generosity is one of my top words if I was going to describe you and what you make. But I think the companion word might be forgiveness, which is that with with that generosity, and as you say, the sort of fallibility of the of the three sixty character, implicit in that is our agreement as an audience to forgive the the transgressions, forgive the mistakes, forgive the kind of fuck ups, um, and and see the mirror, you know, see that by forgiving the characters and seeing them as you know faulty human gorgeousness we're also able to c- come away at the end of the performance and feel that forgiveness is somehow in ourselves as well there's a sort of there's an uh, instinctive compassion in that that i think is such a brilliant outcome if you can get an audience to come away and sort of be in a world where compassion is more available wouldn't that
0: be bloody Ooh. brilliant I'm feeling moved to do a cross stitch of it. Forgiveness and generosity—some <laughs> strange around <laughs> it. I mean, I
1: think there is a. a point. I, I'm such a. I'm, I feel so grateful that there is that idealism is available. You know that actually, I, I, and I think it's idealism with which has got some accumulated proof behind it. I think. You know, people coming out of Wise Children, you could feel it in the auditorium that there was this real um, rich joy and people were touched but they were also, you know, provoked and surprised. You know, that it's such a range of all sort of really three-dimensional experiencing that show.
0: So before we say goodbye, um, we're working on w- Wuthering Heights and the lockdown has been a bit of a gift to us, hasn't it? Because we've suddenly oh, got much clearer diaries and normally we would meet between maybe three times in a design process and there would be train journeys to usually your studio and we'd, we'd work sort of intensively and because that hasn't been possible we've been working we did a fortnight of doing two hours a day and I found that again you've changed the process who knows what we'll come out of this with but I found the time that we spent with each other talking about the script talking about the story has been really enriching and it feels like we, we've taken out some of the heat of our lives and in a slightly cooler world found such depth and um uh, such discoveries and i've loved that i've loved just the time we've spent together albeit online yeah
1: me too i mean i think it's a rare that's been a rare gift for sure i mean i think there's a um there's an excitement to be had you know thinking about the way that we've made work in the past where It's an act of improvisation in the moments that you do have together, where you have to rely on instinct to create the right connections. And that in itself, of course, has a a reward, but there's something about having had that time simply to dive into the story. And in a way, find a way of describing our uh, responses and ideas. We haven't had much of a range. And so narrowing the range has meant that the the time has been the thing that's made up for narrowing the range of expression with each other, sort of. So it's meant that we, I think we'll go into whatever the next phase of making the pieces with such a sense of what our potential vocabulary is Mm -hmm. for storytelling. I mean, amazingly, we've come up with a pretty secure storyboard for the whole thing and certainly a very distilled environment for it you know talking as you were earlier about curating for 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 what the actors come into that Mm -hmm. that act of curating feels in a really lovely kind of balanced state between a containing idea that just will hold things and the possibility of what might erupt out a of crucible. I mean, it was so interesting doing that Zoom uh, reading of the script and being able to play the environment in my yeah. mind alongside that. That was really delightful.
0: And it's, it's been a really successful process, but before anybody jumps on the fact that people no longer need to meet in the arts and we can all work, our 30 years of friendship and professional experience it it gave us all of the the sort of the the fertilizer was there wasn't it we just sprinkled seeds in a different way but it's been really it's been it's been the the primary color of my lockdown so far is I agree that and I think with the experience
1: and the process. I think as you say without that without that kind of ballast of friendship and experience together i we i don't think we would have got as far as we have i think we will have we would have noticed the absences much more because i you know there's no doubt that i miss being in the room with you but i think what i would carry on into the next you know the next project that we do together would be how do we enlist that time in a process that also has our physical time together, because it's almost what what it reminds me of. It, you know those those two-hour sessions every day. It's, it's almost like like living in the same village, yes. just that we could pop in yeah. for a couple of hours. <laughs> and that that is that kind of, that would be ideal, I think, for me is finding a sort of form of a, a creative village next time we do a process like this and that maybe that's about being clever about time and how you know maybe maybe you do kind of drop in some consistency in terms of this sort of contract but also let's live together for a couple of days yeah and just you know fall into those accidental conversations as you're chopping the onions
0: I was going to say I'm missing missing some of the basic sharings of food and drink and if we could pepper that in as well it would be bloody purpose. yeah
1: yeah it, there's such a lovely um, natural energy
0: to that for sure so dear Vic thank you for sharing tea and biscuits with me today can I take this moment to thank you for your calm your creativity your exquisite and unshakable taste um, your mystery your surprise, <laughs> your shining intellect, your steadfast friendship and the decades of inspiration that you've given me. Thank you. Oh, Emma, so lovely. Thank you very much. I'm going to play out with a little blast from Wise Children, sung by the amazing Dinah Washington, Is You Is or Is You Ate My Baby. You is, Vicky Mortimer, you is.
6: <laughs> I've got a man that's always late time we have a date But I love him, yes, I love him. And I'm gonna walk up to his gate and see if we can't get this thing straight, cause I want him. And you know I intend to have him. I'll just ask, is you is or is you ain't? My baby, the way you're acting lately uh, makes me doubt. You is still my baby, baby. But it seems my flame in your hearts are done gone out. A man is a creature that has always been strange Just when you're sure of one You'll find he's gone and made a change Well, is you is, or is you ain't my baby Well, maybe baby's found somebody new Is my baby? Oh, yeah. Is he still my baby? True. Creature That has always been strange Just when you're sure of one You'll find he's gone and made a change So is you is? Or is you ain't my baby? Maybe My baby's found somebody
0: Have a memory or connection you'd like to share on Tea and Biscuits? Leave us a message on our phone line 0117 318 3846. That's 0117 318 3846. Keep checking our social media for details of our next show. Tea and Biscuits is part of Wise Children's Lockdown. Thanks for hanging out with us. Bye.